Hey everyone, welcome to Required Reading. It's me, your host, Nick, and I just wanted to welcome you to our more relaxed fit holiday episode. Um, you'll notice that this is, once again, Mike and Mike Carroll. Uh, we're talking kids' books, and we're kind of just talking about their literary value, having a little fun on this more lighthearted episode. In the meantime, we want to thank you for all the listening and support you've given us over the course of this year, and we're looking forward to exploring even more. Uh, you'll also notice in the next few days, and probably scattered throughout, I will be adding a few special things to this feed, so listen for that. Um, and if you haven't done so yet, rate, record, and uh, rate, share your recordings, and thanks for listening, and, you know, reach out to us. Thanks, guys. Welcome once again to Required Reading. Uh, this time we're doing a little bit more of a relaxed fit episode, a little bit of a casual way to get into the uh, holiday season. Uh, Mike and I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk kids' books, uh, mainly because uh, I have a young one at home, and by the time you're listening to this, I have a second young one yeah. at home. Congratulations in advance. Congratulations. Uh, we also, as you can hear, have on panel... Uh, Mike Carroll, welcome back, Mike. Thank Mike, you. He impressed us so much. We, yes. we couldn't. He couldn't stay away. <laughs> Beowulf for children. That's yes. right. Uh, and of course, my co-host. Hi, Mike Burns. Um, so what we decided to do is bring in some kids stuff and uh, just kind of toss it around. I mean, um, I think we all know Dr. Seuss. Um, Mike brought in poetry. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I I was kind of going back and forth between uh, Shel Silverstein, who everybody knows, and um, I I read a lot of Dr. Seuss, and my parents read a lot of Dr. Seuss to me as well, um, and the when when I was taking a look at some of the poems that I wanted to talk about, some of the ones that have uh, that have had like a pretty a pretty uh, big impact on me, uh, Jack Prelutsky. Uh, actually is the the poet that uh, that a lot of a lot of poems that I originally in my brain for some reason had attributed to Shel Silverstein uh, were actually written by Jack Prelutsky. Uh, so um, so yeah, I wanted to I wanted to bring in some poems by by him and uh, and read through them and, and talk to you guys about them because they're uh, I think that what it is that they're doing in the poems a lot of these a lot of these uh, these poets who are writing specifically for children. Um, do such cool things with language. Uh, and I think that it's, it's almost incredible what it is that they're doing with language. If you, if you start to dive into it. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. And I brought in Olivia saves the circus, um, by Ian Falconer, just because it was a favorite of my children who are both in, well, my son is 18 and my daughter's, uh, in her twenties. So, um, just a family favorite. And I, it makes me laugh every time I read it, so that's why. Yeah, um, and since this is kind of disparate, a little bit different, a little bit lighter, uh, we can probably go one at a time. Um, but I know Olivia well. My daughter, you know, some idle aunt sent the first book, and now, of course, we own all the books. Nice. And, uh, nothing helps like quite like a good illustrative style. I think we should start with Seuss, though, because it's yeah. so influential. So we'll start off on that one, Nick. So I guess my story here about this is I grew up loving Dr. Seuss, like I think probably everyone born after the 1950s 
uh, heard Seuss. I mean, he was, uh, you know, before we had really like the spot books or Curious George, Dr. Seuss was the children's author. Um, he did political cartoons during World War II for Stars and Stripes, which we look at when we teach World War II. Yeah. Um, and he kind of hit it big with the cat in the hat by taking the first two words that rhymed, cat and hat, on a list of words he was supposed to teach kids, and went from there. Um, I wrote a little biographical paper on him when I was, I believe, 10th grade. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, we had to do presentations. So instead of reading my presentation, I just sat kids down. We had story time, and I read The Lorax. Uh, the Lorax is, for those of you who haven't, Read it, which I don't know if it's possible, but it's about a Lorax. Uh, and everyone knows Lorax, rolls off the tongue. Uh, but it's essentially an environmental message that comes out in the mid-70s. Um, and unlike a lot of other environmental books, uh, this one has a call to action at the end, which yeah. is something that I think is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, so do you guys have, I mean, Dr. Seuss, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't get much better than Dr. Seuss. Uh, that, was, that was always the, and it's so funny that, Another thing that I keep thinking of, um, and I was thinking about this a little bit too, kind of in preparation for the podcast, uh, the how how uh, much entwined the illustrations are with the text in these children's books. Absolutely. Um, and I think that Seuss is just such a master of that, that in all of these books, whether it's the, kind of like the wonky um crazy looking buildings that would in no way like pass any sort of code uh but that's neither here nor there uh and like the the bright colors and the 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 creatures that it is that he comes up with it, it it's just so it's so uh woven into the story that that seuss is creating and i think that there's there's no better example of it than seuss i think that he he just does such a great job with it in, in all the books yeah i mean and we're, we're in history class up to the era of reform, and we'll talk about the McGuffey readers, and the McGuffey readers are like, more or less like Aesop's fables, you know, little short stories that have, you know, Protestant work ethic, little ethics, you know, rolled in with a simple rhyming scheme. But there's no life in those books, right? You know, C-Spot Run only has so much cover, or the Dick and Jane books. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so to have something like this is just remarkable. Um, and again, like I'm, I'm of the age where I don't think of Christmas without thinking of the Chuck Jones, how the how the Grinch stole Christmas, and, and Boris Karloff, right? Boris Karloff, With and the narration, yeah, and that wonderful internal rhyme. Like again, you you don't know what a Grinch is, but damn it, you know what a Grinch yeah. is, right? <laughs> um, and the way that he just kind of enters the lexicon. Uh, and I mean, we're all here to to read kids' books. Um, so just to your point. The book starts, <clears throat> you know, your parents' voice, yeah. your dad's voice. <laughs> At the far end of town where the grickle grass grows and the wind smells slow and sour when it blows and no one, no birds ever sing except for old crows is the street of the lifted Lorax. And you have this like weird internal rhyme structure as well. It's not it's just- so rhythmic as it writes. Da, 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 da. Yeah, just, and, yeah, bounces along. And again, like we, we teach poetry to an extent. <laughs> well, he teaches poetry. I learn poetry every year, but like, this isn't just masculine rhyme. It's internal rhyme. It's multi-phased rhyme. And he makes up words. And you're like, how do you teach kids to read by making up words? But it's because the syllables are internal within them. Yeah. And, and you know what these sounds are. Yeah. And you know the context, too, because you, as Mike said, you're looking at the images and you know what he's kidding. And as a kid, too, everything is new. So that word might not seem a nonsense word to you. It seems very real. And that, that's 
you're calling it what it is. You're giving a name to it. Um, and speaking to the art, I wanted to mention, like, I used to live in Roswell, the suburb of Atlanta, and there was a gallery, the Ann Jackson Gallery, that in the early 90s, I guess, they had Dr. Seuss, and this is an interesting conversation to have, I guess his wife started to license out his art. And huh. so this is one of the licensed galleries, and you could go in there, and I remember when my kids were little, you would see drafts or you know printed lithographs of his early art and he did sculptures and weird stuff and it was sure. just really interesting to see but i always questioned like why are they doing it the seuss foundation could not need the money there's no, no way. certainly not so why i just wondered why and most of it was pretty good but then at, after a while maybe it's just my seeing it a lot of times just wondered why why are they doing this and well, there's no slight against people who collect that and have a piece of seuss but um i found it interesting yeah. Well, then to me, in some ways, it's almost, I mean, I feel the same way about the Muppets, right? Like, you know, in some ways, Kermit is its own, his own actor, right? And so to have a different voice is a shame, but at least the character lives on. And then you look and there's everything has been licensed. Right. And, and it feels, I don't know if it cheapens the art or not. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And yeah. Especially when you're looking at, I mean, this is the one I'm going to come to talk about, but like the original How the Grinch Stole Christmas is essentially monocolor. It's all red, the characters are white, and then there's occasionally green tinsel, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's such simple, beautiful mm -hmm. art. Like, to have it somehow change, like in this even, the color scheme's the same. It's just when they're in the grim, gritty future, the present that we're talking about, there's almost haze over it. And then when we're talking about the time when the Lorax was around, it's vivid. But it's the same color scheme, but it's so subtle. Kids get it. I could be reading this to my daughter in Italian, and she would still understand it. Yeah. Um, this is neither here nor there, but it's a story. I was cleaning off the driveway with a pressure washer and I write the names in cursive and she goes, daddy, you know, I can't read Italian." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I like that word. Metallion. Metallion. Okay, Metallion last night. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, anyway, so we can go through the story just in half a second. It's a kid's book. I think reading this out loud would take 15 minutes. But it's more than a kid's book. I think that's why it endures. I think that's why all of us like chose these books because they work on multiple levels. Yeah. It's yeah, one of those absolutely. books, as in Mike, you'll learn this. There's some kids' books that you'll love reading to your child and others you're like, oh my God, I can't do another round of this. <laughs> that's right. I mean, and like, and some are funny. I think Olivia is funny. Uh, my favorite to read when, I, when she's in the mood for it is the Grover book, The Monster at the End of This Book. Because it's, I don't know how you write action like this into a kid's book, but there is action as he panics every frame. Yeah. Um, so, kid appears. <laughs> Smash cut. He appears to talk to the onesler, uh, who is this capitalist that we'll get to, and wants to know what, what trees were like. Essentially, what happened before. And after paying him off, he talks about how he comes to this beautiful land with truffula trees. Um, and effectively he cuts down the first tree and the Lorax appears. Mister, he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs, he was very upset as he shouted and puffed, what's this thing that you've made of my truffula tuft? <laughs> um, and again, like, you guys know this, like, you don't, you don't have to, I could show the pictures, you know, cat style. <laughs> yes. Um, but the whole idea is that he's made something that doesn't make sense to anyone, which is on purpose. Uh, but business is business and business must grow, as the line is repeated throughout the book. And it comes to the point where we're willing to cut down all these trees at the expense of everything else to make a dime. 
Um, it's a criticism on environmental or a criticism on capitalism in favor of environmentalism throughout this whole thing, uh, which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you guys know much about Seuss himself? I mean, was he sort of countercultural that way? I mean, I know from and he was in the news recently because people were canceling him because of his um, racist propaganda during World War Two. Right. Um, but he was working for the U.S. government and that was their system is propagandized. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and he as a person, I think start out as effectively an illustrator mm -hmm. right like he's he's doing these cartoons now um he gets kind of pulled into production very early on because i mean we're talking at a time when illustration meant kids books right uh, and he didn't want to keep doing kind of propaganda for the the government um but by the early 50s he writes the books that have also been canceled uh, which is if i ran the zoo uh, is the big one. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's 1950, so just five years after the war. Then 55 is Horton Hears a Who, and then 57 is The Cat in the Hat, and 57 is also How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Green Eggs in Hand is 60. So, like, by that point, Dr. Seuss is the brand we think of. Um, I would guess his methodology just kind of comes out by the mid-50s, where he's, he's made a Doctor of Letters um, at Dartmouth for his, you know going towards kids book and from that point i guess he's kind of untouchable they like to brag about him at dartmouth i'm sure they do <laughs> i'm sure they do i mean wouldn't you no i mean i i applied to dartmouth uh, and wanted to go to dartmouth and when i heard that dr seuss was, I was like oh that's that's a fun that's right. a fun <laughs> celebrity to have uh to have gone to dartmouth so but yeah i mean um other than that i mean just to kind of put it together at the end like it's it endures because it endures. I mean, the book is 55 years old at this point, if it's 1971. No, that, that's the math that social studies teacher would have done. <laughs> it's 60 years old this year. No, 50, 50 years old. Years 50 old. years yes. old this year. As someone yes. born in 1970s. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, am I accidentally aging you? I apologize. Um, effectively, as the business swallows up every last natural resource, the Lorax looks longingly at the person leaving behind this podium that says unless on it. Um, let's see. And effectively, the idea is the kid has one truffula tree seed left as an idea that there's still always hope. Right. Right. Um, and it's funny because this is the seventies, like the clean air act is passed. The clean 71 water one was, or 70 was the first earth day. Right? right. Yeah. So it's very current. It's, it's a call to action. Yeah. And there is something incredibly, it's, it's an interesting change in the rhetoric of today, which is urgency today, right? Like, if we do not pass this climate bill, there's no hope, right? Like, as opposed to this, which is, there is hope. There's always hope. If you try, like, um, unless someone like you, who cares a whole lot? Like, that's literally right. the last line, which is something that I guess there is to a kid's book, right? Like, all kids' books have that kind of, you know... Anglo-Saxon Protestant morality to them, right? You can be better, be a friend, be nice, be mm -hmm. polite. The ones that stand challenge the kids in some way. And I think this is what this is. It's 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 cool that it pervades because oh God, they've tried to make this life action. But it's sad that it's still relevant, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> or more or irrelevant, maybe, if you want to be cynical. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, never see the live action version of the cat in the hat. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> There's a live action version of that too. I know I've seen well, one. Well, yeah. It's animated at least. Right. right. Not, not live action. Yeah. Well, yeah. The cat in the hat is oh, literally Mike Myers in a suit. Yeah, I think it's Mike Myers. Yeah. Um, that is an, creepy. Yeah. There, there's an animated Grinch and a live action Grinch. The live action Grinch is the one with Jim Carrey, which right. is which is a lot. Um, the animated one's a little bit more swallowable, but yeah. once again, Benedict Cumberbatch has to play an American. Yeah. <laughs> so, hello, I am the Grinch. Um, Hi. Uh, so, I will, you know, m- my selection <laughs> was the Lorax. This is your, did you read that growing up then? I read it growing up and I've read it to my daughter. Okay, and then what does she think? She likes it. Um, we have a bunch of Seuss books, so we kind of float around. But again, uh, as, as, as fathers in this room, you know that bedtime sometimes means we, we have 45 minutes and bedtime sometimes means that everyone's tired and you have 36 right. seconds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, is, this is a longer book to read. Uh, and so if she's in the mood, we'll do it. Um, you know, same with things like um, the Museum of Everything in the Whole Wide World, which is another Grover book, or Dragon's Love Tacos, which you will, yeah, yeah. it's oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's longer. That's a little bit shorter of a book. Uh, and then I have, like you said, the big old Shell Silverstein collection. And sometimes she'll just pick a few pages to go through. Right. And read a couple poems. Yeah. Speaking of, Mike, lead us off. Yeah. So, um, again, I think uh, so many of the poems that, that I thought were uh, were written by Shel Silverstein actually were written by Jack Pralutsky, um, who I think is, uh, I think it's safe to say, is a lesser known, uh, a lesser known poet. Um, was from was from kind of the the New York area. Kind of a sad story. Uh, his his parents and family died when he was still a baby, um, and he was taken in, I believe, by his uncle, um, and was raised by uh, was raised by his uncle. Um, but nevertheless, went to uh, went to high school, and I feel like in so many different ways for writers, it can really go one of either way. Uh, when they go into high school, it's either that they were inspired by a teacher um, and and thus kind of went along that uh, the the writing path, thinking uh, thinking that they can change the world through their through their writing. Uh, I think that we're we're all teachers here, and 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 hopefully we're on the optimistic side of things. And, yeah, and of course, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that's the way some of our students are uh, are looking back at their education here at Marist. Um, but for for. Uh, Jack Belusky and how it pertains to poetry, that was not the case. Um, he, he always says that he had a teacher when he was in high school that clearly hated poetry, um, clearly hated teaching poetry, um, and <laughs> was convinced that this teacher was required to, uh, to, to read a poem every day per the syllabus, um, and that this teacher was determined to read that poem every day in the most monotone and boring voice possible. Um, so, so Jack Berlusky did not have this like great admiration and love of poetry when he was in high school and then graduated from high school and had a couple of like odds and end jobs here and there was working in, um, was working as a taxi cab driver for a little while, ended up working at uh, a cafe where he was singing and performing um, hmm. during kind of like open mic nights, which is actually where, uh, he had met, uh, Bob Dylan, believe it or not, uh, met really? Jack Perlutsky. Yeah. Right. For, d- during one of those open, <laughs> uh, during one of those open mic nights. When was this? What uh, year? What this, oh gosh. Uh, well, Jack Perlutsky was, was doing a lot of his writing 
when he was during kind of like the 1980s or so. So the he was much younger, I think. He was he was still in his 20s when he still, and it must have been still when he was, he must have been in his very early 20s or maybe even his later teens when he was working in this cafe. Um, and what and he would do in addition to the to the poems that he was writing, he very similar to Shel Silverstein, very similar to, to Dr. Seuss, was doing his own illustrations as well. Um, and the I think that part of what's so remarkable about Shel Silverstein's uh, books, and I think that it's also true of Jack Falutsky's, is that it's so it's so fundamentalist. It's just like black and white. And uh, ju just thinking about like the cover of Where the Sidewalk Ends by by uh, Shel Silverstein. And you get this this boy and his dog who are kind of like leaning over the, uh, yeah. the, like the, the, the edge of the sidewalk, but everything is black and white. And I think that a lot of what brings that color to the, um, the poetry is the, is the, uh, the, the, the rhythm and the meter and the rhyme. And I, I, it, it doesn't need all of this color because it's so simple and it's written for kids. And I think that that's part of what I find so, so particularly intriguing about the artistry in a lot of the particular poetry collections, both by Jack Prelutsky and, um, and by Shel Silverstein as well. Uh, they certainly lack the uh, the vibrant colors that like the Lorax would have, or or even uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas, or uh, Green Eggs and Ham always have these. You, when you think of Sue's, you think about those bright colors, um, and I don't know. I just when when I think about the children poetry, I think that in one hand it's written simple enough so that anybody can understand it, but then I also think, as is the case so often with all poetry. When you stop and kind of examine it a little bit closer, the things that are being done with the language, though very natural and and done in a way that a child can understand, are also really complicated and really mind-blowing as well. Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've got a, I, I have a couple of, uh, of examples, but the one that, that always comes to mind whenever I'm in uh, 10th or my 11th grade classes and we're teaching poetry is uh, is homework or homework, which I've, I've it's, it's a poem that just I'm and I'm convinced by the meter of the poem I've had memorized for, for a while, but I have it I have it printed out here and I, it's very short. I'll just read through it um, and you'll be able to hear some of the meter and I'll talk a little bit about the meter afterwards, too. But it goes like this homework or homework. This is by, uh, again, Jack Falutsky. Homework, oh homework, I hate you, you stick. I wish I could wash you away in the sink. If only a bomb would, would explode you to bits. Homework, oh homework, you're giving me fits. I'd rather take baths with a man-eating shark or wrestle a lion alone in the dark. Eat spinach and liver, pet ten porcupines, then tackle the homework my teacher assigns. Homework, oh homework, you're last on my list. I simply can't see why you even exist. If you just disappeared, it would tickle me pink. Homework, oh homework, I hate you, you stink. Nice, And Beautiful. I mean, how, uh, how much more fundamental than a kid hating their homework, hating the work that they need to do, does it get than Jack Falutsky there? But at the same time, if you look at the rhythm of what it is, it's all dactylic. Um, and so, so the just like super, super quick, looking at like the foot of a line of poetry, most often, I mean, Shakespeare has made, has made very 
famous iambic pentameter, sure. uh, the two households both alike in dignity and fair Verona, where we lay our scene yeah. from ancient Presbyterian to New Mutiny, right? We, we get that da 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 da. Uh, then there's the the trochee, which is the exact opposite of an I am, which goes stress on stress. So instead of the I am, which is the the um, da da, yeah. you have the trochee, which is a da da. Uh, which also Shakespeare utilizes uh, quite frequently whenever there's any sort of like enchanting that's going on. So think like the witches from Macbeth, the double, double, toiling, trouble, da, 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 da. So you get that stress and then the unstress. And then something that is used a lot less frequently is the dactyl. Um, and I always tell my poetry that you have you have poetry, or I always tell my students that you have poetry right there in your body because it's called the dactyl with the with the the digits on the hand. If you look at your pinky, you have the long kind of like space just looking at your left pinky uh, from like the the base knuckle up through the up through that next knuckle. It's a long kind of like stretch. And then you get the two shorter ones that come afterwards. So that's what the dactyl is. And if you think of a pterodactyl, if you were to look at like the skeleton of a pterodactyl, it's the same way that the wings are arranged as well. So you get this like da 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 And that's the rhythm that the dactyl is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be kind of like a death march. Yeah. And what better language to use in your in 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 a poem than a death march as this child is complaining about the homework that their teacher mm -hmm. is giving them. Right. Da, 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 da. And you see it all over the place in, uh, in, in children's nursery rhymes too. If you look at Humpty Dumpty, mm -hmm. right? Humpty Dumpty, that's trochaic, Humpty Dumpty. But then you look at the rest of that poem, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. You get the da, 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 da. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You get the da da da, right? And then the all the king's horses and all the king's men, da 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 da, right? So it's kind of like that that rhythm that's just there in nursery rhymes, and it's played at I think really well in this particular poem. That's why I want to start with that one, uh, is because you have the the stress on stress on stress, and I think that that it's a great example of how the meter in poetry can also reflect what it is that that poetry is is trying to say with which with homework a homework is that homework you stink right so that da, 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 da. i just think it's a it's a brilliant and beautiful representation of when meter can represent kind of uh can not, not only cannot only be present but can also emphasize and and aid in the message that the poem is trying to bring about as you're reading that and it's been a long time that i remember that one but um it made me think a little bit of like a limerick line mm -hmm. so it's sort of sort of set like da 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 da, da. but yeah you, know, you just fall into the rhythm and it carries you yeah. along and it has that built-in anticipation and you're working towards that punchline which in this one is oh homework you stink and right he just like, he nails that well think of think about that rhythm that you were just saying that da 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 like hickory dickory dock it's it's all over the place in yeah. nursery rhymes yeah well and i guess i was it does also the thing that you want kids stories to do which is it's a feeling that the kids have, right? And then it, it, it puts them into words. And because of the meter, you couldn't read it like acceleratingly. Like it's written in such a way that you read it the way you read it because of the pacing. Like thematically, it reminds me of the um, Shel Silverstein poem, Sick, where mm -hmm. he's talking about all the ways that she's sick and she wants to stay home that day. Yeah. But that one's written in a way that you read it faster and faster as she's uh -huh. desperately trying to get out of it because the meter of that one is the words get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. So. Oh, it's Saturday. Well, never mind. Yeah. Right. And so I just, I, it's fun to play with this language because again, 
<laughs> my kid is a little young for homework. But that's what that's what it's like. Yeah, that's exactly what third grade homework is yep, like. Right? Exactly. <laughs> if but I'm all... sure your your daughter already knows, Nick. Like homework's bad. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and as teachers, we are cruel beings for inflicting that on our students. But, exactly right. Um, I'd yeah, rather take baths with a man eating shark. <laughs> I mean, right. it's, it's it's just so simplistic and so it's so hyperbolic. And it's that's great. another great thing about it, right? That's right. You got another one, Mike? Yeah, yeah. So so this is this is another one that. Um, you know, it, it's funny. Did you say where you first encountered Blavatsky? Uh, uh, so it's, uh, I, I don't think remember. I ever did. No, well, I, I do actually, believe it or not. Um, the, when, when I was, when I was uh, in elementary school, um, we would, we, I, I was part of like all the, the school plays and everything uh, leading up to like, there was always like one big, uh, play production at St. Augustine's in Andover, which was the, the private Catholic school that I went to. Um, and every year for the, um, for like your, your audition, you needed to read through or you needed to perform some sort of, of poem. Um, and I don't think that this particular one is, uh, is one that, uh, was written by, Jake Perluski, but I know for a fact that that the, the next poem that I'll read in just a second was was one that would always be used by all of these again second third fourth grade kids who are trying out for the elementary school right. play and what are they using they're using homework a oh, homework I yeah. hate you use stick and uh, I, I I I know that that's like where I where I kind of got the where, where I was introduced to Jack Perluski also where a lot of those Shel Silverstein poems end up coming from what, the first time I was introduced to those because prior to those uh, prior to those uh, those auditions when the, those books would be checked out of the school library because right. they were going home and people were <laughs> trying to scour through them and pick which poem they wanted to do for the school play audition. My brother, before he was in, I think it was before his, he, uh, but before one of his first like auditions, so he must've been in like first or second grade, um, read a poem about dragons. And I can't remember if it was Jack Kralutsky or if it was Shel Silverstein, but this was, if you can envision my my brother when he was in first grade, who looks very eerily similar to, to what I look like, um, saying, uh, uh, if, uh, yeah, it was it was entitled, If You Don't Believe in Dragons. And this is how the poem read. If you don't believe in dragons, it is curiously true that the dragons you discourage choose to not believe in you. Right. And that's what he said. And he landed like the lead in like the, like the first grade role in this, in, in this play. But, uh, but anyways, it, it's is he still acting today? No, no, no oh. unfortunately not. Uh, no, but, um, but yeah, that's the, that's the, and I think that it, they're so simple, but for some reason, like, why do I remember that, that poem? Like, it's so silly and it's, it's so rhythm and, the rhyme. And, and the other thing too, is that I can remember like the picture on that book and on, on one page, you have a uh, like a person who's like walking down the street and there's like a dragon that's like hiding behind a trash can. And then on the next page, it's a dragon that's walking down the street and the kid is hiding behind the, the so it, it's just such a, such an awesome marriage of like the visual, but then also the meter and the poem. It's just, it's just so much fun. Uh, which is particularly this next one. It's another one that kids would always use for that audition. So I, I've had it memorized for a while, but it's, it's one that I think is, it's just so brilliant and so awesome. And again, there's stuff going on with the language, but it's entitled today is very boring. Um, and, and this is how it goes. Today is very boring. 
It's a very boring day. There is nothing much to look at. There is nothing much to say. There's a peacock on my sneaker. There's a penguin on my head. There's a dormouse on my doorstep. I'm going back to bed. Today is very boring. It is boring through and through. There is absolutely nothing that I think I want to do. I see giants riding rhinos and an ogre with a sword. There's a dragon blowing smoke rings. I am positively bored. Today is very boring. I can hardly help but yawn. There's a flying saucer landing in the middle of my lawn. A volcano just erupted less than a half a mile away. And I think I felt an earthquake. It's a very boring day. And I, it's just this like great kind of play off of the, the, this language where so dissimilar from homework or homework you get today is very boring. It's a very boring day. There is nothing much to look at. There is nothing much to say where you get this kind of like droning rhythm, but then all the things that are actually happening in this, in this presumed child's day is it, the last thing from, from being boring. Right. And it, it's, it's kind of like almost like a little tap, uh, like tip of the cap to like the, an early kind of, for, for those analysts of these, of these young children's poems, like, like a, like almost like a glimmer of irony that's, that's kind of like hinting here in the background of this, this very not boring day from this child speaker who's talking about it being a very boring day. Um, so it just, it, it's just so fun. And the images that are there of this flying saucer and the, the, uh, the, there's a penguin on my head, you know, and it's just, it's just so playful and, and, and so fun at the same time. Yeah, that's good stuff. It's written by a parent. That, yeah. that, that, that's what it is. Like, it's the kid's like, oh, there's nothing to do. And you're like looking around and there's everything to yeah. do, right? And the complete opposite of children's poetry. I was listening to a podcast with Sam Harris last night. Yeah. And he talked about just because of cell phones, I'm holding up my cell phone, that kids don't know what it's like to be bored anymore. Yeah. It's like if you have a moment of boring, you, you have something to entertain you. And the boring when you're bored, that's when you use your imagination or that's when you're forced to sort of think for yourself in a way that we don't have to do anymore. And mm -hmm. never, never kind of put it in those terms before. So yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Uh, was this, is it making sense? Is that the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's great. Yeah. He was talking to Paul Bloom as a scholar. And anyway, highly recommend that podcast too. If you're not listening to us. Right. <laughs> and not bored with us, hopefully. Right? Yeah. yeah. Other but, final thoughts on Prolutsky and then I'll get an next one. Yeah, uh, no, I, I just I, I think that it's just once again, it's just such a great it's just such a great um, kind of representation of this like hyperbolic language and also these great images and the 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 pictures that they're able to paint with their with their with their words mm -hmm. and with this rhythm. And then also the, 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 they don't need those extra pictures. And I think that Seuss goes in a very different direction than Shel Silverstein and Jack Perlutsky ends up going with the very simplistic and very kind of uh, basic poems. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, not basic poems, basic, uh, basic illustrations. Uh, but it's just, I think such a cool way to, to, kind of approach what can be a complicated. And uh, if I, I think if you were to act, ask uh, Jack Falusky when he was back in high school, a sometimes kind of inaccessible uh, art form. And it, it takes something that is complicated and it, and it, makes, it, it makes it accessible. Um, and I mean, you, you don't have to read homework or homework and, and look at the dactylic nature of the meter of that line. 
but it but it's but it's still there and i think but that it's... that's why that that that's what makes it so good to teach actually and i know that we're not talking about like teaching with children's books but i i think that it, if it's accessible to a first grader because of the meter and the language and the images that it's creating and the playfulness of it it's accessible to an 11th grader who is starting to learn what a dactylic meter looks like you know so i, I think that it that it is worthwhile and that's why homework or homework when i'm teaching dactylic meter is actually the poem that i use and it's it's a children's poem but i think that it's that it's that there's a reason that it's so accessible and it's because it's intentionally very accessible to that point and, and because of the rhythm and the meter and you had these memorized from uh, many years ago do you still make your poetry students memorize poems is there, oh, do you man. see value um, in that i mean let's let's touch on a teachable moment yeah yeah um i don't know if i i, I can't think of in any classes where um where i have them actually memorizing uh lines of poetry I do know for a fact that at all levels of my education in elementary school, I remember when we did a poetry unit when I was in seventh grade and I needed to memorize a poem. Well, um, what was the poem? The, oh, gosh. Now, now, of course, I'm on the spot. It was right after, <laughs> it was right after our Edgar Allan Poe unit. And I know that I read The Pit and the Pendulum for, for the Edgar Allan Poe unit. Sure. And the, the, gosh, the, the poem is actually escaping me. I can't remember what, what it was that I had needed to memorize, but I remember my, my honors, um, my honors English class in, in high school. Um, it wasn't, it was, it was, well, it was poetry in the sense that it was iambic pentameter, but my, my teacher, uh, made us memorize, uh, segments of monologues and soliloquies by Shakespeare. Sure. And so the to be or not to be speech and the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and Macbeth. And uh, I think Friends, that- Friends, Roman country. Yeah, I exactly. That yeah, country yeah. Caesar, and, yeah. And those are still ones that, 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 that like stick in your brain. And I think that it's for that same reason with the meter. Um, and then when I went to college, I took an intro to poetry class um, and that's, that's really when I fell in love, not only with, with uh, that class, and we read Helen Vendler's intro poetry. Oh yeah, was my was my introduction to not only like like college level literature, but also like loving literature. Um, and for that, I memorized the last uh, the last like twenty five lines of Walt Whitman's uh, Leaves of Grass. Really? Of the, yeah, oh, wow. uh, I didn't know that. And so I'm the so. The, I'm sure that if I were to, to take five minutes and kind of like really rack my brain, I might be able to come up with it. But, um, but yeah, those are for, for some reason, I, I don't know if it's the meter or the rhyme or what, but there's, I think that there's something to poetry that, that's, that, that just kind of like sticks with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do but you, I, I wonder if we shouldn't make them memorize more because yeah. I have stuff like as you're sitting there, I'm trying to think, I remember from a snow packet we got when we lived in Indiana, this must've been like 1976. It was like if you had snow days and it was a huge blizzard, you had to do your snow packet. Sure. And it's like, Mr. Rabbit has a habit that's very cute to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wrinkles up and crinkles up his little nose. And I could do the whole thing. It's sure. hard to memorize that over the snow day. Yeah. But I wonder because, like, back to the to cell phones and information is so accessible that I think we're losing that part of our brain. Yeah. And I don't know if there's value in that sort of pedagogically or not. I, I always offer extra credit to read The Raven or memor memorize mm. at least, you know, 10 stands of The Raven, but it's got that sort of very 
accessible rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's one you can pitch as long if you pitch the first word of it, it comes back to yeah. you, right? Uh, I think I memorized Casey at the bat. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah fantastic. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, and then when I took a Brit Lit course in college, I memorized the soliloquy from Hamlet. Yeah, another um, classic because again, he has a very specific pacing the way he does it, and you can stretch it out as dramatically as you want, uh-huh. but the scheme is so such that. If you have the first line of the word, it kind of comes back. Yeah. But Casey at the bat, in honor of the World Series, which Braves won, Woo! just, just <laughs> that we're talking on, on the Thursday the 4th, so the day before the parade even. But there's just something so quintessentially American about Thayer's <laughs> Casey at the bat. Um, but yeah, so that's the first one. Seventh grade. I yeah. remember memorizing it in seventh grade, so there you have it. Nice. So uh, let's talk about how the pig saves the circus. Okay, so my book is Olivia Saves the Circus. And Nick, I know you know this one, Mike. You know this so one? it's yeah. it's so funny, Mike, because uh, I'm pretty sure it was just yesterday. I walked into the house after after work and after practice, and lo and behold, what is sitting on our our living room table? But Olivia saves the circus. Nice. And I, I don't know, Mike. There's a, there's a chance that it might have actually been from you because I know that we had our we had like yeah, our I book. Think I did that too. Yeah. Okay. Right, well, yes. well, well yeah. thank you. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I, I guess uh, Catherine must have been reading it to Avery uh, just yesterday. We're we're clearly trying to 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 work in some more some more uh, different variety, as you were saying, Nick, at the start of the podcast. Uh, you you, you got to start to work in some some new variety. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, giraffes can't dance. So okay. uh, so. Uh, Avery's been hearing a lot about Gerald the giraffe, um, but uh, and Chicka Chicka Boom Boom is, an, is, Classic, is another yeah, one that I've right. that I've been reading a lot of. But it's so funny that you're doing Olivia because I walked in yesterday. I kid you not. And yesterday on the on the the living room table was. Olivia saves the circus. Nice. So, yeah. Fantastic. And how old is Avery for our audience Avery, here? Avery is uh, so again we're we're November fourth, uh, so Avery is is uh, twelve weeks old, going okay. on thirteen mm-hmm. weeks. So probably not a whole lot of reaction out of her. No, for, for, no. <laughs> um, we discovered those books probably a year and a half ago. Okay. When my daughter was about three and a half, and uh, we burned through them, and then you know the, the kids' books go in waves, so you'll read the same book for about two weeks, and then. Right. She'll pull something off your bookshelf and then you're back into Olivia yeah. and all of her <laughs> exploits for another three weeks. So there you go. So I dug this out because I remember it was a favorite and that's why I gave it to the Carols because um, our kids loved it. And then I opened it up just this afternoon and it says, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Emma. I love you, Lucy. Oh, and sweet. so we got this. There's a Maris connection here. So this comes from Lucy Grindon. Al Grindon's daughter was um, just a few months older than my daughter. And uh, when Al was teaching here, our our girls were very close friends and they were both very precocious young ladies like Olivia the pig here in the story so there's a clear connection there and what I love about this is just the illustrations talking about the illustrations it's not written in rhyme but it's got a very sort of sassy smart girl who does her own thing and and thinks very highly of herself and very proud and and clearly very smart Um, and so it's just like before school Olivia likes to make pancakes for her new little brother William and her old little brother Ian, and this is and this is a big help to her mother. And then there's a picture of Olivia walking away in the kish, kitchen is a disaster, but <laughs> Olivia is clearly trying to help and, and help things out. But what I remember reading this for the first time, it still gets me every time. There's a picture of Olivia's room, and then there's a picture. There's a like a so it's all hand drawn in, in black and, and red and white, um, but 
there's a picture in Olivia's room, which is a, a photograph of Eleanor Roosevelt, like with her hands raised in yeah. some sort of victory. Or I don't know. What, and I just laugh every time I see that. Sure. Like, what little girl would have a picture of Eleanor Roosevelt there? So clearly that's a little tip of the cap to adults. Like, okay, this is not your normal little girl. Um, and then she goes through the day and then she has to do a report at school on what she's done. And she talks about how uh, one time it was, uh, she went to the circus, um, but uh, the animals and things weren't going well, so she does it all. So she tames the lions, she trains the dogs, uh, she becomes queen of the trampoline, and there's pictures. And then, like any good children's book, it folds out into like a, <laughs> a, a big spread, like a four-page spread that you know so unfolds. So that's always important when you're reading with children. You, you can open things up in the little like peekaboo kind of sure. uh, pages there. Well, and, and just to jump for a second, yeah. that is what makes the book, her, his, uh, Ian Falconer's illustrations fantastic because that had so much action in four panels right. just in the unfold. Because again, she swings off the, off the trapeze, bounces, practically disappears into the trampoline, flips through right. the air. It's just, it's so, the the art style is incredible. Yeah. yeah this like... But again, it's it's a it's a kids book, and I love everyone we've mentioned does not treat it like cheap no material, right? Because right. there are those kids book I'm sure that are just like a hundred words for kids, and yeah. they're the cheapest, most not. These people care about what they're doing, and it really shows. Yeah, they capture something that that's real about life. So whether it's like saving trees or the injustice of that, or it's just like the injustice of homework yeah. or whatever. <laughs> Or just the idea that, you know, they've got a picture of Olivia training the dogs and it, and it says they weren't very trained. <laughs> Everyone has a dog at home, right? That you think it's trained. It, no, it's not very trained, really. Uh, and then the dog is lifting its legs on the circus ring there. So, <laughs> um, And then so she finishes the story. Olivia is very proud in the illustration. She's there. And then it's small print on the next page. Then one time my dad took me sailing. The end. Uh, it's just the way a kid would deliver it. Like sort of like there's a whole other story there, but just the end. Um, and walks off. And then the part that always made my kids laugh, um, in particular, my son would just giggle till he cried, um, was Olivia is jumping on the bed at night because she doesn't want to go to sleep. Uh, and her mother walks in and says, well, who do you think you are? Queen of the trampoline? Which she said earlier in her story. And then in the end there, she just says, maybe. Um, and so, yeah, it's sort of aspirational like these children's books are. You can do something. You can dream. Um and then the, the simple illustrations that say a lot. So this is just a funny book that I, I never got tired of reading. Sure. So that's why I picked that one. I will say that I like her female and like hero, heroes. Like you said, there's yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt. There's one where they go to like. So I don't even know the other Olivia books. This is just our favorite. Oh, I mean, maybe we have some, but this is the one that stuck with me. There, there's one where they go to like the 4th of July and she wants, there's no band playing. There's just fireworks. So she's going to be her own band. Uh, but at the end, she decides music's not for her. And she dreams about being on the Supreme Court. And oh, so, nice. she, so it's like the Supreme Court in the middle. There's just one little pig. Um, so I mean, again, like it's, it's, it's cute. It's aspirational. And I looked it up. I didn't know anything about it. But um, apparently Falconer um, was uh, friends or boyfriends with David Hockney. Um, oh, no kidding. And then um, this book won the Best Illustrated Kids book in 2002. And it came out in 2001, but uh, won in 2002. So... Um, but he's a set designer, like in Hollywood and, and for Broadway um, um, shows. So an artist in his own right, in a different genre. But uh, and he has a niece, Olivia. That's where the where the title came from. So 
as 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 a connoisseur apparently of these books uh, <laughs> get it it's, it's incredible read it uh they did a nickelodeon show oh, okay um, ignore it it's not good <laughs> oh, no, really well, because they take all the charm out of it okay uh, and they even make some books based on episodes of the show which just are not the same yeah uh this this stuff sings it's incredible i wonder if he i don't know did he like sell off the rights and someone else was creating that or something it, it must have been because i mean it's also a show so there's probably 20 episodes a season and like even if they start out with the the, the choice material yeah how do you keep it, it up right so let's do prince and the pauper right like it, it's that kind of a thing and it just you lose right. quality quick and that's Obviously, the thing they were fighting with Sue is just in the background. Like, we can do another Jim Carrey movie? No, absolutely not. We've, we've got we've got to at least make it animated because you lose all that character. Yeah. Um, so I love the Olivia choice. Yeah. Um, last question we always ask. Uh, obviously, we don't teach kids, but uh, we we've talked about doing a kids well, unit. We teach kids. I don't know what you do all day. <laughs> but we've talked about doing a kids book unit as a way because in the sixties, fifties, sixties, the idea of this stuff starts to come around. Um, so, I mean, you've talked about it poetically, but I totally think this could work in the classroom. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look at or, or take something that they know or have internalized and then, you know, use their more advanced thinking and, and talking about meter. Or, yeah. Uh, what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or have them try to write in that style. Could be interesting too. Absolutely. Can yeah. you write a Dr. Seuss? I don't know if I could. I think you could do the rhythm of it, certainly. Yeah, yeah I think could. The, the way he comes up with the words, though, is hard. Yeah. Um, the whole universe of his creation. I think the yeah, this was when I was in eighth grade and at St. Augustine's in Andover, there was uh, there was like a buddy system in the, the church that we would go to first Friday mass uh-huh. every month was right like was three quarters of a mile from like, well, gosh, you know what? I, I just said that it was three quarters of a mile. I bet you it was like a quarter of a mile sure, from, of course. From, from, from the actual school. But it, it felt like it was like five miles. Of course. Uh, but they, they had a buddy system with kindergartners and eighth graders that uh that like the, the eighth graders you would walk hand in hand down and it was kind of like the the pairing system gave the eighth graders some responsibility sure. gave the kindergartner somebody to look up to and and everybody was able to safely get to mass uh but for our for our like one of our last things that we did in english class as an eighth grader before going on to like the big bad high school wherever it is that you were going um because st augustine stopped at eighth grade we one of the projects that we did was we needed to write a children's book um, that. for that for that uh, for that kindergarten buddy that you had. And I remember I uh, I wrote it kind of like I try I, I I wanted it to be kind of like Dr. Seuss. I'm sure that it fell like so short of that. But a kid like was walking down the street and like fell into a puddle. So kind of like a blend between like Dr. Seuss and like so Alice in Wonderland, right. if you will. And, right. the, and he met like the the puddle people. And, 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 oh, like, nice, that, Mike. And, like lived in this puddle. <laughs> I yeah. need to bring that back. Yeah, I love the, it. The, now the only thing that I can think of is that I, I remember drawing like because we had to do the illustrations too. And I remember trying to like model it after like the Dr. Seuss houses and buildings in town that this like puddle town ended up becoming and how difficult it was to to like to draw in that way and i remember trying to like i got really good at drawing a foot because i needed to like read like illustrate that page like again and again and again because i kept getting it wrong i I, I vividly remember like there was one like one page where this this child this poor child who fell into the puddle is like descending like down into the puddle and it's just like their foot as it's falling down on the page but yeah so i i can i can say from or rather eighth grade mike can uh can 
confirm that writing a children's story in in that intriguing of a way, I think is I think is more difficult than oh, yeah. than it, than, it, than originally meets the eye. Yeah. yeah. And the illustrations, particularly, like how yeah. can you do something? Say, and we've talked about this with the graphic novels we've talked about, Nick. Just how minimalist you can be to tell so much right. in, in an image, and that's what these people are really good at. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, and again, like even uh, Greetings and Ham. How do you get? Can, how do you convey a kid's exasperation? Yeah. Just please. Yeah. I, <laughs> I do not want to eat this damn thing. Please. Well, and I, I know. I know it's another Dr. Seuss book that we didn't talk about. I think it's a lot lesser known. Uh, but Marvin K. Mooney, will you mm-hmm. please go now? That's one that my dad would read to us before we were going to bed. And kind of similarly, it's that, that like parental, like exhaustion of like, like Marvin K. Mooney, will, will you please go to bed? My goodness gracious. And of course that one ends with the time had come. So Marvin went. That's right. And it's just like such a simple, like yet, yet all encompassing kind of like line. that's like, it was time for bed. And so Marvin went. That's right. The end. The end. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, last thing we do is: uh, Are you? Is there anything that you have read uh, recently that you would toss out to the universe? Um, so, actually, actually uh, I this is my I've taught uh, I taught Brit Lit for the first time last year, um, and as a result of kind of like the funky schedule that we had, um, we ended up dropping the last text that we read last term. Uh, or or the, the the first term of the year, we ended up dropping that that text, and that text is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm. Uh, it's the the Tom Stoppard uh, play, um, and so for the, in order to teach it this year, I just uh, I went through and I I finished reading the play. It's the most recent thing that I've read that I that I finished, and it it I mean it's wow. It's I mean there's, yeah. there's so much going on, and it's it's like existentialism at its finest and it's it's just a brilliantly constructed and worked play uh and it's it's really phenomenal um and i i've been trying to i've been trying to talk with somebody about it because i i in fact i just uh i just texted one of my friends last night uh who he was texting me about jeopardy and his his response is very proud of the the response that he had gotten uh on one of the questions uh and i was i asked it's like is there any way in the world that you've read rosencrantz and And he was like no i've got no idea what you're talking about darn it uh, but yeah, it, it, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and it's and obviously we, we, we teach it here at Maris right alongside Hamlet, which the play itself is right alongside Hamlet. It's, it's essentially for those that, that haven't heard of it. It's, it's like the what's taking place kind of like in this Wonderland esque scenario in the wings of the play of Hamlet. Uh, so it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's kind of like side of the story, but it is kooky and crazy and, and, that like nothing exists and everything exists and it's it, it's it's really cool. So uh, highly recommend it. Have you seen the film version of it? Uh, so I, in order to, I'm thinking about pulling a couple of uh, a couple of clips to show my students. If we now, of course, we we alluded earlier that we have our asynchronous day yes. tomorrow because of the uh, because of the the Braves winning the World Series. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to work my schedule to see if I can show them a couple of clips. So I've seen parts of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Brilliant, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very good. That might be a good uh, episode next season. Yeah, as as a play. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mike, um, I just uh, picked up yesterday based on a, a review I heard on the radio. Um, My Monticello. It's a, a collection of short stories by a public school art teacher um, who has been writing on the side from Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, 
and I just burned through three of the stories last night. And it's amazing. Huh. Uh, maybe something we can bring to class for American Lit or um, American Experiment. So um, sort of dystopic, but um, contemporary in mm -hmm. there and, and race-based uh, sort of conflict, at least what I've read so far. So haven't finished it yet, but um, so far so good. So great, actually. Yeah, Excellent. Well, um, I guess in the low literature section this time for me, uh, based on a conversation I had with uh, Mr. Carroll as we were leaving the last time, I cracked back out Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, oh, shit. which I don't think I'd read since college. Um, oh. And uh, so I just cracked out the first one, burned through that, um, starting a uh, restaurant at the uh, middle of the universe, at the end of the universe, excuse Fantastic. me. Uh, God, it's funny. <laughs> Oh, I, I mean, I, it's funny off the bat, like I remember the very beginning, which is, you know, he wakes up incredibly hungover. He can't remember why he's hungover, but he's just doing word association. Yellow. That tractor is yellow. The bulldozer is yellow. Why am I thinking yellow? Oh, God, they're going to destroy my house. <laughs> yeah. And then like, and again, like, of course, the number 42, a pan-galactic gargle blaster. Like, oh, the pan-galactic. Yes, right, absolutely. Which is described as... Um, Essentially having your brain smashed in with a gold brick with a hint of lemon. Like it just, <laughs> there's just something so colorful, so amazing about this world that the whole point of the earth is that it doesn't really matter. They're trying to get the answer of the universe. It's, it's, you'll love it. If you have, I don't know if you, how you could like a book podcast and have not read it, but you have to read this yeah, book. Definitely. It's, it's amazing. And that's another one that, that, uh, I think when I was younger, I was I was obsessed with all the red wall books. Those were yeah. the, the the like uh, kind of romanticized uh, like Arthurian mice. Sure. That were the, yeah. oh, oh my gosh, I, I gobbled them up. I couldn't read them fast enough. And my brother was never really as much of a reader. Uh, but there were a couple of books that he read when he was in high school and when the way that he would talk about them and what it is that, that, that the way that he would kind of like discuss them and then Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was one of those um, where where I could just tell that it's like, gosh, this is just a, this has got to be a stellar text. Yeah. Um, and and so he finished Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and rolled right into uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe and not to not to spoil the it, it's it's hardly a spoil it comes up in the first like 20 pages but one of the funniest like literary scenes that i can think of is when this this crew this this galactic crew who has like gone through through all of these different trials and tribulations over the course of the first book makes their way to the restaurant at the end of the universe and they are greeted by talking cows who are talking up like the different cuts on their body like you should really try my t-bone like it's, it's been it's been designed to be the most delicious in the galaxy and like that scene is just absolutely that the some of the things that Douglas Adams comes up with are just are just out of this world good yeah, yeah I, I can remember being on like a family car trip somewhere and just laughing out loud in the back seat till I was yeah. crying and my parents and my brother like what are you what what's going on so mm. yeah yep. so good so it's good. it's funny because now my brother who I was saying was not as much of a reader now he's the one that actually brings me pretty much all of my book recommendations sure. right. so all I think right. that he's he's kind of like gone full circle there and now he's he 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 finds what it is that he likes and then he passes on what it is that he uh that he that he really recommends so I'm yeah. I'm grateful for that get him on the podcast yeah. here yeah and i mean sci-fi is hard comedy is hard this is both and it's and it seems so easy breezy seamless yeah. um are you gonna keep going with the series then 
Yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean, I, I have I have nothing else to do. <laughs> um, anyway, so special episode. Uh, the last thing we're going to do is Mike and I are exchanging books this season um, as a way to do a book exchange for Christmas. Oh, fun. Uh, so, Mike, what do you got for me? So, I didn't wrap. I see you wrapped yours, and I feel inadequate. But, oh, yes. um, I've chosen for you Kindred by mm-hmm. Octavia Butler. Mike Carroll, do you know this book? I'm not, no, I'm not familiar with it. Um, it's a sci-fi book um, by Octavia Butler. It is um, African-American woman. She's writing in the 70s. I think this came out in 74. Um, so sort of a voice that is not as heard of as much or as far as like African-American females in science fiction. But amazing, amazing work. I think you're going to really like it. Um, essentially, it's a sort of a time travel story for a woman in L.A. Um, suddenly finds herself transported back by some means she can't understand to a plantation in Vir- no, Maryland. Um, and she has to, she's called back when this person, uh, she has this connection with, uh, feels his life is threatened and that's all I'll I'll tease you with there. And so she's sort of going back and forth from modern time in the seventies to 1813s in a plantation. So enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you. Talk about that. You should read that too, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's a graphic novel version of it too. So, um, we can talk about that as well. Just brilliant in its own way. All right, I'm unwrapping, as you can hear. Ah, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Hunter S. Thompson. I figure since we talk American Dream in class, we might as well get to the heart, the cold heart of the American Dream. This is good stuff. Um, And I know that the beginning of the book is what people know, and near the end it falls apart, like the dream itself. Uh, We've teased it for a while to do it, uh, so I think it'd be perfectly appropriate to to do it. These books will come up um, as episodes, I believe, in uh, February. Um, so, uh, we'll have a chance to go to, to actually read them first, yes. uh, then we'll come back together. Love it. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reviewing. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank yes, you, wonderful. guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Nick. Um, and we're out. Hit. Required Reading is hosted by Dr. Nick Hoffman and Mike Burns. It is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. The theme song is written and performed by Davis Burns Music. The podcast is engineered and produced by Nick Hoffman. The opinions expressed here are the opinions of the hosts and guests and do not represent Maris School. Thanks for listening.